1: Hey, hello there, and welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me as we gather as a little collection of wrong thinkers to examine things beyond the uh, approved boundaries of opinion. You know, this used to not be such a big deal, but uh, have you noticed those boundaries have shrunk, or at least they become much more clear <laughs> to where there are things you just don't question. There are things you just don't talk about. The matter is settled, the science is settled, and, and so forth. Well... This is an alternative. Now, that doesn't mean that I have all the answers, but it definitely means I'm looking for truth above some dogma that uh, purports to tell me everything to think, say, and do. I, I can't be the only person right now who is looking around, at the, at the, and I'm looking at the big picture. I don't just look at the political stuff. I look at what's happening um, economically, geopolitically. Um, I look at culturally what I see taking place in front of me. And and not a bit of it speaks to well. This is a hey. This is a healthy society here. We are definitely in our ascendancy, and and creating the best that we know how to create. And I don't mean to. Say, I'm, I'm not trying to be a wet blanket here and saying everything about us is terrible. I'm just saying the the direction used to be up. We were ascending in in terms of you know our our technology, our culture, in terms of what we were just bringing the world. I don't think that's so true today. And and because of that, I have a couple of choices. Actually, you do as well. So um, humor me on this as, as I outline. This is how my thinking goes. I can choose to spend my time focused, in fact, hyper focused on wh- whatever is the current, uh, you know, crisis of the moment or breaking story of the moment for mass media or I can choose to focus on the things that uh, that actually have some kind of meaning in my own life. And that can include a lot of stuff. I mean, you may actually care about government and say, I'm getting involved. And I think, you know, people who feel that responsibility absolutely should do so. But you also have other things like family, like building a business, uh, building your community. or I, I mean, I see so many, to me, the, the most unsung heroes that we almost never hear about are the people who have created organizations that go out there to fill a need within the community. I'm going to give an example of this, just because I, I'm guessing this may not be one that would immediately occur to, um, to, to some of my listeners. I'm aware of an organization in Salt Lake City that is on a very regular basis out there collecting coats and backpacks and camping gear, things that would make it easier for a homeless person to weather winter in the Intermountain West, you know, things that would actually, you know, I- improve the comfort of their life in a situation where they have nowhere to go. Shelters are full. You know, no business wants you hanging around. Basically, you're, you're almost invisible. But, you know, what do you do? And I know people say, I, I've heard all the excuses and, and um, trust me, I have my, I have my prejudice, too. I get blind or at least I, in the past, I've always tended to to get selective blindness when a homeless person, you know, is is coming towards me, especially if they're panhandling. It's like, oh, I don't see you. You don't exist. <clears throat> and I never realized how I never realized what a cop out that was in the sense that I, I'm not, I don't want to invite, you know, a, a pushy panhandler to come after me and, and be, you know, haranguing me and threatening me for money. But it doesn't hurt me one bit, and it doesn't cost me anything to at least acknowledge that uh, that's a person. I saw this with my own eyes a few years ago. I was in uh, Phoenix, was down there for some training, and uh, one of uh, one of my colleagues from another think tank, um, she and I were, were walking back to, to where... You know the the whole group of us were were staying, and it was night and it was you know downtown Phoenix, and we had just left a nice little pizza restaurant we are carrying you know some leftovers and there were homeless people everywhere now this is in February, so you can imagine there's a lot of homeless people uh, <clears throat> who prefer cities like Phoenix uh, because there's there's an obvious uh, you know weather advantage at least in the wintertime and something this lady did that that just impressed me to no end. Was when homeless people, you know, when she encountered them, you know, when they when they would, you know, look at her or something, she would talk to them and say hi, how are you doing? She actually stopped and offered, you know, to one guy, you know, she said, would you like the leftovers? It's it's just pizza, but you're welcome to it. And it was so, I I don't know how to put this other than. There was no pitying. It wasn't just, oh, poor you, let me come help you. Like, you know, the, this person was a project. She just she just said hi to them like it was a neighbor that you would pass in the street. She engaged them in conversation, and and I learned something. And I, I learned that, uh, yeah, I've been taking the easy way out here. And I don't know that I was doing myself or anybody else any favors. Now, what I'm suggesting here is, uh, you know, this is counterintuitive to a lot of people. I'm sure we've all been told, no, you just... I don't have anything for you and you keep walking on your way. But I'm going to suggest uh, maybe with the way things are right now, we ought to consider, do we have to handle things maybe just a little different than we have in the past? And I don't mean that everything is turned on its head so much as I think this is a time where, where we've got to be much more focused on recognizing the humanity in the people around us. And I say this from the standpoint of there's a lot of hatred. There's a lot of anger. Um, maybe, I hope it doesn't sound like finger pointing. And when I say a lot of it is very irrational, as in it's it's people don't even want to try to get along. They they just want to talk past each other. And and it's toxic enough. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the news of uh, the um, I forget her name, Gina Carano, the, the actress from the Mandalorian series on on Disney um she has been now you know canceled let go from from working on this incredible hit show because she would not bow to that pressure to 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 uh, to be politically correct in everything she had teased people for for you know putting their pronouns in their in their profile and i don't mean she sought them out and wanted to ridicule she just you know made fun of the the practice my point is this you may think that rude. You may think, well, that's that's a terrible thing to do. I think it's terrible to force things on people that, that you really don't need to be forcing on people. I think we can accommodate each other very easily if we see each other as individuals. But, man, you you, you start adding power to a situation and people stop being people. They're just, uh, they're, they're a statistic. They're a commodity. They're cattle to be herded. This is what turns me off to politics more than anything is the prospect that a lot of people, and I think mostly well-intentioned people still approach politics from the standpoint of, well, you know, we have to do this so that we can punish those who don't agree with us. And they're thinking the same thing about you. Nobody ever stops to think maybe there are other ways to solve problems besides politicizing them. Nonetheless, you've probably thought, you know, that, uh, There's just no common ground. And I'm here to tell you that on an individual basis, you can almost always find common ground. There are very few people out there who are legitimately sociopathic or psychopathic. Like, it's rare. So this is probably as much for me as it is for anybody else. But occasionally I have to be reminded, if you're making group judgments, if if you're engaging in group identity or identity politics... Well, you know, what what group are you a part of? And, of course, here you can get into some different levels of it. It's like it makes D&D look, you know, very uncomplicated by uh, comparison. I mean, well, we've got this level of intersectionality and, you know, are you a person of color? Do you have a handicap? Are you uh, in you know any one of these, these alphabet designations? Uh, it just goes on and on and on. And it's 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 a solution looking for a problem. And the solution is somebody said something. I'm offended. It's all about me. Now we have to cancel them. It's blood sport. So here's my point. I, I see all this stuff just coalescing around us. I don't see it getting better anytime soon. In fact, if anything, it seems to be kind of building towards a you know a boiling point. Not something I'm happy to see. I can't be the only person who has uh, entertained the thought, where could I go to avoid You know, the majority of this. I don't think anybody's going to be able to completely insulate themselves from that. But I'm not the only dreamer, right? I see by a show of hands, how many of you have read uh, Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged or watched the movie? It's a long book, so I don't I don't blame anybody if they want to, you know, get the Cliff's Notes version by watching the movie. You know, I've been accused of, well, you've got this uh, Ayn Rand fetish. You know, you you just you're in love with Ayn Rand. And, and, and they make it sound like uh, you ever you ever talk about the ideas that she was promoting, like nobody has a moral right to you or your your property or your substance. Anyway, when we come back, we're going to talk about the practicality of going Galt, as in John Galt. Stay with us.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I want to mention that uh, one of my sponsors here on the program is uh, my friend John Staples who is uh, involved in some really great housing opportunities in Southern Utah. And, and he'll be the first to tell you, by the way, the real estate market there is just absolutely going crazy. Like it is many other places. People are relocating. People are voting with their feet. People are making serious changes in their lives right now based on, eh, we don't really like it here, we don't feel safe here, or we're being taxed to death here, or I don't know. They, they have a number of different reasons. Let's just Let's just say my home state of Utah is a place where a lot of people seem to be finding themselves. Well, I want you to reach out and contact Rio del Sion home lots. These are just outside of Zion National Park. They are beautiful. Doesn't begin to cover it because they're right down there along the uh, uh, next to the uh, Virgin River. It's truly some of the most remarkable Country on Earth, it's just absolutely gorgeous. You'll find a link in the show notes at the thebrianhydeshow dot com. And again, even if you're just curious, want to take a look at it, click on that link. It's under my sponsors, and uh, I, you'll you'll definitely have some things to consider. You know, I've thought about this a lot, and 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 I'm I'm still. Thinking about it, and that is the the prospect of strategic relocation. Now, I know there are people who've been doing this for years and years. If you're one of them, I commend you. You know, for having the foresight to be mapping this out ahead of time. Um, But uh, as you look around and you see what's going on, it's 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 forgivable for people to say. Maybe maybe it's time for us to put some distance between civilization and ourselves. And I'm I'm not talking about a bunker in the middle of the desert somewhere, you know, where nobody's ever going to find you. Just taking charge of your own destiny and, if necessary, separating yourself from those systems that are dependent upon some of the power centers that also seem to want to control every aspect of your life possible, Does this make sense? In other words, you're you're trying to reduce your governmental footprint. And I I can think of no finer example of this, at least in literature, than uh, than what happens with John Galt all through the book. Atlas Shrugged, people are asking, who is John Galt? Who is John Galt? And and I think his speech is something like thirty three thousand words long. I know it takes like 50 pages out of an already super thick book. But he explains, you know, why the principles by which he lives his life. I will not, uh, you know, swear. To, I, I swear by all, you know, all that I am and by my life that um, I will owe no man or I will. Um, basically, no man can make any demand of me that I will not, you know, that I that I don't have the ability to either approve or disapprove. In other words, it's that I have no obligation to some other man as in a compelled interest. Now. Ayn Rand, some people would say, took that to, you know, some really difficult lengths, like to the point of uh, you're on your own. There's no concept of, of charity. And I suppose it, it could be taken in that direction. But there is a larger issue there about people who just get tired of being um, fed upon and and it's it's bad enough when when a parasite is feeding on you through your pocketbook okay we notice it you know money that we could have put to use you know in improving our our lives our families our homes our communities no it gets siphoned off and sent to, back to support whatever you know political interests and special interests uh, the those in power are currently favoring and sometimes it'd be nice to to get away from from that uh, that uh, parasitical Relationship. I'm tired of being a host, and I really don't like it. I really don't like it when the parasites start trying to work their way into my brain and my thinking, as in telling me, you can't think this, you can't think that. I think what got to Gina Carano in trouble, uh, the actress from The Mandalorian, was she compared the way that the Nazis treated the Jews to the way that the supposed anti-fascists and, and woke people in society in America today treat those with whom they disagree. And it's, it's they're both hate-based ideologies. So, you know, for those who are saying, why, well, there's just simply no comparison. No, there is. They see other people as less than themselves. They see them as, as objects that are worthy of destruction. They don't have to line up, you know, ideologically, you know, with this purity test of, well, it has to be 95% or more. They favor violence and they favor intimidation to making people do what they want them to do. I mean, that's is that is that too simple? Is that oversimplifying or does that pretty well summarize how these kind of ideologies work? So to get away from this, let's just say that a person says, I I don't want to encounter all the stuff. I mean, look, at its absolute worst, I think the two places where you are most likely to feel the presence and the influence of. For your own good, busybodies working their absolute, you know, hardest to control you is either going to be on a college campus or it's going to be at the airport. I don't know which one is worse now. They're they're both really, really bad. But boy, if you want to you want to see what the abuse of the recently empowered is like, huh, either one of those places will do. So let's say that you were wanting to step outside of that uh, that system for a while. In other words, maybe downshift your lifestyle. You're, you're not a jet setter. You're not, you know, living lives on, on either coast and, you know, partying with the, the rich and the elite. I mean, not that people are bad for doing that, right? It's just maybe some of us have some more down-to-earth priorities. But when you're thinking about making a run for Galt's Gulch, so to speak... In other words, turning your back on the parasites and I'm going to retreat to my private redoubt where, you know, I am not being hempecked and ordered about and and otherwise plundered every 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 single day. The person who writes this article and it's published to the burning platform dot com uh, goes by the the moniker of hardscrabble farmer and they talk about uh, how they decided to to make their move for more self-reliance just as the 2008 market meltdown was in full swing. The writer says, we'd seen enough signs. We knew whatever direction our society was headed. We wanted to get off. And some of the signs were big ones that few people missed. 9-11, Waco and others But he says there were others that were more subtle, the PC movement, the tattoo thing, the sudden appearance of huge numbers of morbidly obese people everywhere, an increasing number of people with their heads fixed in abject submission to an electronic device and an overall decline in civility, even in places we'd known all our lives. If this was the initial trajectory, then he says we weren't planning on being anywhere near the reentry and splashdown. Now, the person who writes this, look, they're, they're not sitting in judgment on you. And and they point out that they had fallen for it themselves with constant consumption of resources, the enslavement to granite countertops and cable TV, the widening gap between what we thought we wanted and what brought us peace. He says, we tried to mitigate our sense of unease by going to church and doing good deeds for others. But this only highlighted the failure to live up to our potential in all things. When you do something bad, or careless, or wasteful, or selfish, you can't undo it by being nice to a stranger or roasting a turkey for the folks in the nursing home once a year. It only makes it worse because you know you're trying to hedge your bet. At some point, if you have any sense of honor and decency, you have to make a decision to throw in with the rest of the world and go along for the ride or strike out on your own path and see if maybe there isn't a better way. Now, he says, looking back over the past six years, it's clear we didn't really have the first clue about going off grid. We'd watched a lot of YouTube videos, read the core curriculum of our alternative uh, of the alternative lifestyle school, even developed a few essential skills for our new life. But says we still had our heads firmly in a time and place that we were leaving behind. So this is some good advice here. He says, if we had to do it all over again, there would have been a lot of things that we would have changed and a few we would have done better. Now, when asked about what motivated them or how they should have adjusted or if it was worth it, those are questions that apparently a lot of people ask. But he says, rarely are we asked how we did it. So here's a short course on the five most important considerations of actually saying goodbye to the popular culture of the U.S. and finding a sanctuary wherever you go. That sounds like that might be fun to explore. Why don't we do that? In fact, just the other side of these messages.
0: is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part today by Monticello College. You really should uh, log in online and actually go check them out, College.org. Beautiful country and and a great, uh, great approach to education as well. All right, so would you seriously consider relocating? Would you consider packing up and stepping away from the popular culture of the U.S. and finding a sanctuary wherever you're going? Because if you are, here are a few suggestions. These are the five things to do when you're going Galt. And again, this is an article I picked up off of the Burning Platform. Uh, A lot of great information there. This is the first recommendation. Find the right place. Now, the author here, Hard Scrabble Farmer, says this was one that we nailed more by pure luck than by intention. He says we'd looked around the country, visited numerous properties, considered as many possibilities as we could in the two years we spent getting ready to head out, including staying put. We made several lists with things that were important to us and things we wanted to avoid wherever we settled. And primary consideration was given to the necessities of life like water, energy sources, arable land, a distance from urban areas, but proximity to emergency service like hospitals and fire services. He says we also wanted seasons to play a part in our life, something we considered extremely important, but which others may not. Once we narrowed it down to, to that, we were able to focus on places that had an aesthetic appeal. Mountains, lakes, proximity to a coastline. The final decision was a stroke of pure luck. He says, we made our final decision on a Sunday. The next morning, I sat down at my desk and Googled two words that yielded as the first hit the property we were to buy one month later. Looking back now, he says, it seems as if we were destined to live here. But we based our choice on specific criteria and stuck with it when it came time to pull the switch. A place where you feel at home is one of the most important decisions anyone can ever make. So choose wisely. And by the way, if if you are, are you know, finding the right place, I'm just going to throw this out there because I believe that uh, th- this is one of the best tools that we sometimes don't use. Um, take it to your creator. There's absolutely nothing wrong with praying For direction from God, as to you know what should I be doing, where should I go. I'm a firm believer that uh, help is much more available than most of us um, would even want to believe, but you got to ask. Number two, this is the second thing to remember when you are going galt: do it yourself. Now, here the author, Hard Scrabble Farmer, says, Big mistake on my part at the outset. We had saved enough to purchase the property and to stay afloat for several years until we developed both the skills and the markets for our surplus. The basic idea was self sufficiency, as much as that is possible in today's world. But he says, When we arrived here, we immediately began to recreate the patterns we had left behind. By finding specialists to do what we should have done on our own. We hire someone to clear a pasture. We found a new mechanic. We hired a guy to paint the house, etc. Not that there aren't some things that require a person with experience, like a good dentist. But he says, for the most part, we were capable of doing nearly everything we needed to do. We'd become so used to the idea that one hires out work to specialists that we missed numerous opportunities to learn new skills and perfect old ones. Once we started to handle things without help, we discovered that we were not only preserving precious capital, but building self-confidence, developing abilities that seemed difficult, but were in fact quite simple. And because it was for ourselves, doing a far better job in most cases. He says the idea of fixing a broken timing bar on the tractor, a piece of equipment I'd never owned before, seemed impossible until I took the time to do it. And once done, gave me the confidence to work on increasingly more difficult tasks with success. Boy, that is true, isn't it? I got a lot of learned helplessness in my own life that I'm in the process of rooting out. But that's one of them. Well, something needs fixed. We better call somebody who knows what they're doing. You just got to have the courage to dive in. All right. Number three, live in the moment. Now here the author says, this was the one that jumped out at me more than any other. Most of my life had been lived either planning for the future and making plans for a life I wasn't living, or looking back on the past and either regretting missed opportunities or dwelling on past successes. When every day requires an effort, the repetition of chores, labor outdoors in every weather, endless corrections and fixes of present problems there remains very little time to live in any time but the present. Daydreams are quickly supplanted by focused thoughts. Past problems become immaterial when dealing with life and death issues in the here and now. And the future is constantly being altered by the actions of today. So he says, just as putting your full physical, mental, and spiritual effects into a single task fulfills the human life, so too does the the very act of being here now each dropping leaf, each ball of a newborn calf, every rock and branch become part of the substance and texture of your life in an intimate and personal way that are impossible to understand when these things are viewed as backdrops to a life lived out of sync with nature. Number four, embrace the new economy of subsistence living. We live in a time when people believe that wealth is summed up in a number or having a job or earning a degree or building a retirement account or some sort of talisman against the vagaries of the future. Well, he says people work the majority of their waking hours so they can spend the few that they have to themselves being entertained or to take drugs to alter their perceptions and ease their anxieties without ever questioning why they're anxious or what they need to be distracted from. They choose careers in fields that neither interest nor excite them or compel them to sit sedentary for long periods of time so that their bodies and metabolisms change them into doughy, ill, poorly rested souls out of sync with the seasons or even the hours of the day. He says what we earn in money is offset by what we lose in health and quality of life. What would a person suffering from insomnia give for a truly good night's rest not brought on by chemicals or alcohol? Or what would someone do to feel physically fit when their lifestyle has rendered them obese from ill use? That entire economies are built on weight loss gimmicks and pharmaceutical adulterants to treat these issues should answer the obvious. So he says, by accepting a life with a lower income, but an an immeasurably improved standard of living, we offset our need for dollars and replace it with stronger bodies, restful sleep, fulfilling labor, satisfied rest authentic hunger and happier days before we choose to do this he says i spent the majority of my waking hours doing something i didn't like surrounded by people unrelated to me in an artificial environment spending countless funds to offset my own dissatisfaction while my body deteriorated and my mind dwelled on unhealthy thoughts now i spend my days and nights with the ones i love producing things that have value for people who appreciate the effort my body is healthy. My thoughts are positive. The land we live on is productive. We do for ourselves and for others, and we eat and sleep better than we have at any time in our lives. He says there is a wealth in this life that cannot be quantified in dollars and cents, and it is the result of our decision to stop focusing on earnings and to invest in our well-being. Boy, that's, that would be a hard one, I think, for a lot of us. But I can also honestly say, I think I'm reaching that point where I'd be okay with, it, with a downshift. I could do with less things and more time to focus on the things that are really important. Of course, the pack rat in me is saying, yeah, right, that's never going to happen. All right, number five, do unto others. This is important. Going galt doesn't mean going it alone. No one can do everything by themselves, no matter how much they may want to. You can't get everything you need to get done before you die. Taking those things into consideration, there's a lot to be said for offering your time and your efforts to people who need it. Working for others without a financial angle has become an alien concept in the current era. But for most of human history, it was the framework upon which civilization was built. I'm not talking about pure altruism, but rather community building. He says in much the same way someone contributes to a 401k, providing your labor, using your skills and tools to aid others who do not have them or require them due to their current condition, builds up an account that may or may not be drawn on at some time in the future and perhaps in some way that you cannot imagine. He says, I've described in past essays the way our community treated us after we lost our barn in a fire. And that was after three years of living here. Had we been recluses or behaved in a way that isolated us from others? He says, I don't think the experience would have been the same. By being open, by helping people who needed a hand, by simply practicing the act of being good neighbors, we had built ourselves a comfortable social account without intent. And he says, as much as I resent the current preoccupation from the body politic, demanding that everyone be provided for by taking it from those who have something to take without their consent. He says, I look forward to doing for those for whom I know on a face to face basis when my help could come in handy. I think that's a good approach, too. I think that's healthy. That doesn't quite sound like the wild eyed lunatic, you know, hiding out behind a rifle in a bunker somewhere but it definitely sounds like someone who's escaping a lot of the negativity that the rest of us, for some reason, choose to put up with. Is it because it's so comfortable?
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I got two quick articles I want to touch on here in this last segment. Uh, one of them I'm just going to give a brief mention, and then I'll have a link to it in the show notes at the thebrianhydeshow.com. Uh, that is a, an article from Donald J. Boudreau. It's from Cafe Hayek, and it just asks the question, Am I a guinea pig in an evil scientist experiment? And it's pretty funny. I, I read what uh, Don Boudreaux writes on a pretty regular basis. And uh, he says, right now, he says, for many months I've felt as if I'm a guinea pig in a scientific experiment. Some unseen scientist, likely evil, is studying what happens to human beings if a relatively small number of us experience reality in a completely different manner from how the majority of humanity experiences the same reality. And then some of the people he names for the different, uh, the, the, the group that he has uh, been found in, um, these are people I read on a regular basis. And I'm like, all right, this is good. These are, these are some recognizable names. But he says, most of our fellow human beings perceive reality very differently from how we guinea pigs perceive it. And he goes on to talk about the data on COVID and, and uh, you know, how, how guinea pigs uh, like, like him are dumbfounded by the mass hysteria over COVID. Because he and his fellow guinea pigs, and by the way, I consider myself one of those fellow guinea pigs, don't see anything approaching an existential threat to humanity in COVID. It's an excellent article, and I, I would encourage, he, he handles this with humor and uh, makes, I think, a very good point. It's, it's like we're, we're being pushed. I wonder about this, you know, beyond just the whole COVID thing, although that's that's getting weirder by the minute. But just some of the different attitudes and fashions and developments, I, I think, man, somebody has got a really sick sense of humor just for, for what is, is happening around us. Nonetheless, it's a great article. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Here's one that I found very interesting just because I don't think there's enough talk about sound money. And I'm going to see if I can find the article. I want to talk to you about, uh, oh, shoot. And sure enough, just like that, his name escapes me now. Um, it was a, a business owner down in Las Vegas who paid his employees in gold and silver. And because they are considered legal tender, and right there on that gold piece it says $50 U.S. gold. Uh, but because of the price of gold you know, going up, up, up through inflation, this gold piece was actually worth you know $1,000 dollars. And so on its face value, it says 50 bucks. So, you know, he'd pay, you know, his employee uh, $4,000 a month. But, uh, you know, by the by the end of uh, by the end of the year, when it came time to declare their taxes, well, look, you only were paying me um, $200 a month. Why well, doesn't even reach the threshold, you know, to report this as as taxable income. You can understand why. The, the Treasury, you know, and and why the, the federal government and the IRS decided they would get a little bit uh, irate about this. I don't think there was anything criminal, but he definitely pointed out a double standard that existed there. Robert Kari, There's his name. I'll have more on his story um, tomorrow. Tomorrow. But suffice it to say that uh, man, the IRS came in with a SWAT team, put him on trial, sent him to prison for years and years. The judge lectured his family. Don't you dare teach these children to have bad attitudes about the federal government. But it started over the question of sound money. So I think we need more discussion about it. And there's room for disagreement. But we should be talking about it. And, and part of that discussion, even though you may not think sound money when you hear about Bitcoin, Bitcoin. It's at least opening the door to something like competition in the realm of what we'll have as currency. There's a great article by John Tamney talking about uh, Elon Musk's Bitcoin purchase. This was done through Tesla. Here's here's what he says. He says, not long before he passed, John Maynard Keynes referred to his disciples as fools (laughs) with good reason. Their attempted articulation of the ideas of their hero only served to embarrass him. And he says it's true to this day. Imagine believing that economic growth is as simple as stimulating the depressed by depressing the stimulated through forced wealth distribution. Still, this opinion piece is not about wealth redistribution, he says. It's not about, uh, at least it's not about wealth redistribution as it's traditionally understood. It's about currencies, about which Keynes was expert. Quite unlike the fools who pay no mind to the horrors of currency volatility, Keynes paid it a great deal of attention. As he explained in his monetary tract, economies cannot work properly if the money, which they assume a stable me, which they assume a stable measuring rod is undependable. An economy is just a collection of people who earn what money can be exchanged for, which is why instability of money as a measure of value is so devastating. John Tamney says Keynes understood that Instability of the units, meaning dollars, pounds, yen, etc., harms the individuals who comprise any economy, since those individuals are the ones who sometimes discover the hard way that it is the holder of notes who suffer taxation. Translated, governments tax us in two ways, either through extraction of wealth via direct taxation or by laying off their debts to us in the form of currency devaluation that shrinks the exchangeable value of the monetary units that we receive in return for our work. Keynes understood the implications of the devaluation well and also understood that the holders of routinely shrunken notes eventually revolt. One way they would do this is to employ foreign money in many transactions where it would have been more natural and convenient to use their own. And the examples of this are endless. Back in the 2000s, supermodel Giselle Bündchen responded to dollar weakness by asking that her modeling fees be paid in euros. And more modernly, readers can rest assured that when real goods and services are bought and sold in Iran, North Korea, and Venezuela, Tomans, won, and bolivars are almost never the refereeing currency. Most often it's the dollar, despite its own demerits, and in time it will be private money. Which brings us to Tesla's decision to purchase bitcoins worth $1.5 The futurist transportation company isn't the only one. Among others, Tyson's Corner, of Virginia-based microstrategy, announced holdings of 70,000-plus bitcoins in 2020. Now, these purchases herald a better monetary future. I thought this was the interesting part. This is true, even though bitcoins aren't presently very useful as money. They're not when it's remembered that no one buys, sells, lends, or borrows money. In truth, all financial transactions signal underlying resource exchanges. So with buying, selling, lending or borrowing, it's always products for products. Money changing hands signals goods and services moving around. And when money is saved and borrowed, the latter merely signals the transfer of resource access to the borrower now so that the lender can achieve greater resource access through interest paid in the future. So as of now, he says Bitcoin doesn't work very effectively as money precisely because the value of each coin is so volatile. Really, how many of us could comfortably buy, sell, lend, or borrow in Bitcoin? The potential for huge losses is endless when it's remembered that a year ago a Bitcoin fetched roughly $10,000. As of now, one is exchangeable for $46,900. Someone who borrowed in Bitcoin a year ago with a promise to pay back in one year is presently hurting. Someone who purchased in Bitcoin one year ago is similarly licking his wounds. Lenders and sellers, perhaps not as much. But what's important about what's volatile is that what's volatile rather isn't money because real money is unchanging like the foot, the inch or the tablespoon. Just as the foot is an agreement about length and the minute an agreement about time, so historically is money a timeless agreement about value. Money quite simply is. Money is quiet. The quieter money is, meaning the less volatile the money is, the more wealth that can be exchanged and the more wealth that can be pushed to its highest use. Still, he says Tesla's purchase signals an exciting future because it signals currency competition. Musk is arguably saying that while the dollar is the world's currency, it's no longer wholly trustworthy. Tesla will diversify. And I think that's actually kind of a neat thing for you and I to be thinking about as well. Maybe you're not going to invest in cryptocurrency. But there are commodities that you can invest in. There are tools and there are you know, precious metals and, and things like that, that, uh, food skills, but the idea of diversifying, I think is a really, really good idea. And, and I'm not claiming that I have any knowledge of, you know, this is what the future holds for sure. But can we honestly say there is just no chance whatsoever that the dollar is going to crash or is being crashed as a currency. The day could be coming Now, if Tesla starts exchanging cars for Bitcoins, so will others. And by the way, I heard that they announced last week that they would be accepting Bitcoin as payment. And private money will start circulating, says John Tamney, thus slowly pushing out government money. Gresham's law will yet again be exposed as a myth in this bullish future as real private money that holds its value in stable fashion throughout time pushes out the volatile money. And he says that includes Bitcoin. Bitcoin. So Elon Musk is bringing the future into the present, and we will all be better off as a result.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.